Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI familia, and welcome to episode four of Que Pasa HSIs. This episode is the first to feature a group, and they are definitely hashtag squad goals. As I thought about potential guests for the show, I was careful to select people who could offer unique perspectives on becoming an HSI. I often think about the fact that the enrollment requirement to become an HSI is 25% Hispanic Latine, which is a lot. A campus that has 10,000 students will have at least 2,500 Latinx students once it reaches HSI status, which is significant. If your campus is waiting for the 25% enrollment threshold to start thinking about the process of becoming an HSI, you're too late. Excellency in Education coined the term emerging HSIs to indicate when campuses enroll between 15 and 24% Latinx students. This term doesn't come with an official federal designation or competitive funding eligibility, but hopefully it prompts campuses that are creeping towards the 25% to start preparing to serve, support, and educate Latine students. Starting even sooner won't hurt, especially if you are watching the enrollment trends in your feeder school districts, as research suggests that Latinx students are likely to enroll in college close to home. In our first multi-guest episode of Que Pasa HSIs, I had the honor of sharing space with members of the Portland State University's HSI Exploratory Committee. Oscar Fernandez, Carrie Vasquez, Joe Rivera Soto, and Martin Alberto Gonzalez. I invited them to the show after spending time with them at one of their town halls to discuss PSU's progress towards becoming an HSI. The energy within this group is electrifying. They are the kind of colegas that make you want to wake up and go to work every day. So, of course, I wanted them on the show to talk about their intentional journey towards becoming an HSI. In this episode, we talk about the process of becoming an HSI, the challenges of becoming an HSI, and explore ideas for engaging students and colleagues in the process. We also talk about the unique aspects of becoming an HSI in the Pacific Northwest, an area that has not been thoroughly covered in HSI research. Dr. Oscar Fernandez is an immigrant scholar from Costa Rica specializing in inter-American studies, literary theory, and the intersection of culture, sexuality, and disease in Ibero-American literature, as well as the experience of contingent faculty and queer, trans, Black, Indigenous people of color in academia. He works closely with undocumented students at PSU, which motivated his interest in servingness. Carrie Vasquez is the program coordinator for La Casa Latina Student Center at Portland State University and was born and raised in Los Angeles, California. They graduated with an interdisciplinary Bachelor of Arts degree in Feminist Studies with a concentration in Law, Politics, and Social Change from the University of California, Santa Cruz. Big shout out to Santa Cruz. I've spent plenty of time with them and their HSI efforts and love uh, the things that is going on there. So I know Carrie comes from a from a great space that has been intentional about HSIs. Currently, Carrie provides Portland State's Latina student community with programming that enhances student life, nourishes a sense of belonging, and works towards Latina student retention and graduation. 
Joe Rivera Soto serves as student success advocate in the office of the Dean of Student Life at PSU. He earned his MSED in educational leadership and policy with a specialization in post-secondary adult continuing education. He holds certifications in service learning, community-based learning, and teacher adult learners. Joe is originally from Oakland, California, and has lived in Oregon for approximately 12 years. Dr. Martin Alberto Gonzalez is a Chicano raised in Oxnard, California. Shout out to the 805 scholars, hashtag 805 scholars. We out here representing. He completed his undergraduate studies at California State University, Northridge. Hey, go Matadors. And earned his doctorate from the Cultural Foundations of Education Department at Syracuse University. He is an assistant professor in the Chicano Latino Studies program at Portland State and is regularly invited to K-12 schools as a motivational speaker. He is the author of 21 Miles of Scenic Beauty, dot, 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 and then Oxnard, Counter Stories and Testimonials. He also authored The Key to the City, La Llave de la Ciudad. This episode was a fun one to record, and I love spending time with my new friends and colegas in the Pacific Northwest. I hope you will enjoy the show. All right, so I'm excited to talk to our guests today. So let's go ahead and, and jump right in. Oscar, Carrie, Joe, and Martin, thank you for taking the time to be here today on Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. But before we talk about what's up with HSIs, let's talk about the four of you. This is the first episode to feature a team of four, which is exciting, and we'll get to, could get to the work that y'all are doing as a colectiva, but I want to know a little bit about each of y'all. So let's start first with your higher education journeys. Tell us anything you want, any entry point into higher ed, how you, you know, started higher ed. And, and interestingly, I noticed that, um, you know, y'all are all transplants to Oregon. You know, you wound up in Portland and are doing great work in Portland, but you didn't start in, in Portland. Um, so tell us about that how how you how you eventually um wound up in portland and oregon and, and why oregon dr garcia thank you so much for having us uh, my name is carrie vasquez and i am the la casa latina program coordinator which is a cultural resource center on campus at portland state university okay. uh, so for me specifically uh, my higher ed journey started um, at the university of california santa cruz um, I was a first-generation college student. Now I'm a first-generation college grad. Um, but when I got into that university, I felt a little bit more comfortable expressing my queer identity than I did expressing my Latinx identity, just because I was surrounded by a lot of folks who were queer, but not necessarily Latinx. And I lived with a bunch of folks who were on the, they called it the LGBTQ floor. Um, so that's kind of what I kind of, picture when I first talk about my higher ed experience is being able to express my queerness in that way and before I couldn't really do that but higher ed gave me that kind of opportunity to do so um, and so I lived in those floors for two years and then up until my third year I moved in with a bunch of Latinxes and a bunch of those Latinxes were also queer. So it was like a really great community that I had found in my third year of higher education at UCSC. Um, and it wasn't, it was on my fourth year when COVID hit, right? Um, and COVID hit where I was living, uh, we were gonna be displaced um, because the place I was living, which uh, was gonna be used for a, um, a quarantine zone for folks who had tested positive for COVID there. And so we had two options. It was either to move to a different spot on campus. So packing everything up, 
unpacking everything and then having to graduate three months later and then leaving or moving back home. Um, and so my pareja and I, we didn't want to do either of those things. And we didn't want to move back home with family. We had developed our own identities of being queer, being Latinx, being proud of ourselves. And so we just looked to places that were cheaper, cost of living. Oregonians are going to be mad at me when I say this, but Portland was very cheap in, ter in terms of if you compare California to Portland. And so that's what brought my pareja and I to Portland was just the cost of living. We could afford it with our student worker salaries. Um, and in terms of higher education in Portland, I would say I'm pretty non-traditional in that realm because I didn't start, I didn't continue my higher education experience. And I can get a little bit more into that in, in the next question. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm just very excited to be here and to be able to bring my California conscience, consciousness to Portland. And I think it's very necessary here. Um, yeah. I uh, just want to say, um, you know, Dr. Garcia, thanks for having us. Super, super excited uh, to be here. Um, uh, so my name is Joe Rivera Soto. And uh, uh, it, my journey to uh, to higher ed and to Oregon, it definitely, uh, I would say higher ed, not not linear by by any means. Uh, I, I don't normally think about my very first term in college, um, uh, which was back in 2002 or so, más o menos in Stockton. California, um, uh, I, I spent like a term uh, at Delta Community College, uh, at super perdido, like super lost, just like, you know, I, I filled out the FAFSA and I was like, okay, I'm going to go to school. At the same time, I was being coached by some some brokers uh, uh, in, uh, in the Bay Area, uh, some mortgage brokers and real estate agents to get into real estate. At the time, it was booming, right, around 2002. Uh, and so uh, I was in class. Uh, I remember taking like a, a, a philosophy of law class, uh, being kind of cool at the same time. I'm like trying to learn some marketing and stuff. And within about 30 days of me having like my first client, um, uh, I, I closed the deal. Uh, and I think I cashed out like 6,500 bucks or 7,000 bucks, which at the time was a, a, a ton of money for me. So I was like, okay, no more school. I'm just going to dedicate myself to this thing. Right. And so about, um, eight to 10 years, must or menos passed by, um, earning a six-figure income, everything was great, no higher education whatsoever, no critical consciousness, the, the ninguna clase of any kind, right? Uh, just, just making the big bucks uh, and super young, like my early 20s. Uh, and then the Great Recession happened in 2008. Uh, and uh, I went from like earning $300,000 the previous year uh, to like, you know, $30,000 the following year, lost everything, right? In like, in like one year. Uh, and so, um, you know, was lost as to as to what to do. Uh, had no uh, like formal education. I just knew that I really loved people. I, I loved connecting with people. And even during that time that I was doing that work, my intention was to help my people, which the majority, ninety percent of my clientele were Latino. Uh, uh, needless to say, you know, I, I, uh, you know, years went by and, and and homes were foreclosed on, and and I felt incredibly guilty about that. I ended up transplanting, moving to Oregon. Uh, had a couple of options. I was thinking about moving to uh, San Isidro, uh, which is a border town uh, in, in Southern California, or uh, possibly even crossing the border down to Tijuana and continue trying to work, you know, in, in San Diego as an agent. Um, uh, after consulting with some of my siblings, they're like, man, you can't move to Mexico. That, that's probably not going to be the greatest thing at this time. Don't go to Puerto Rico because that's going to be too far. Uh, come to Oregon. You know, uh, uh, the cost of living is cheaper. And at the time, my sister uh, was, uh, was in the market for a house. 
Uh, and she said, you know, come out here and try your luck out here. So, so we came uh, virtually homeless. I stayed with my, my sister on her couch for a while. Uh, I ended up picking up uh, the first job that I can get because I didn't want to be a sinvergüenza and just be like, no, I have to get a good job uh, or else I'm not getting a job. Right. So I ended up working uh, at a restaurant uh, uh, in the, the uh, you know, uh, what, do you, what do they call that restaurant like service industry. Uh, and of course, where do they put the brown people and La Cocina in the kitchen, right? I, and so I went, you know, uh, to a minimum wage job. After a few months, uh, I was thinking, you know, my attitude and my sales experience and my commitment to, to good service um, uh, would get me a promotion, maybe be a server or something. That didn't happen. I experienced my, my first um, overt uh, case of, of racism. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it was just a very disheartening. Uh, and so I thought, what am I going to do? I have no actual skills, at least nothing I can put out on a resume that I thought made sense. So I went to school and, you know, I'm like 27, 28 years old at this time after having this, this stint of, of, uh, financial success anyway. Uh, and, and I started a community college, uh, Shemekara community college in Salem and I buckled down, you know, I mean, I, I used some of my experiences, uh, uh, that I had learned in the real world, so to speak in business. Uh, and, uh, and, and applied that to my studies. Uh, and, uh, and that's how it happened. I ended up keeping my head down and just, and just learning my butt off and then eventually earning my associate's degree and then transferring to a four-year institution. And I've, I've continued, uh, you know, through there, uh, completed my master's degree here at PSU as well. And, and now I'm in my first full-time professional job. I'm making uh, more money, uh, 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 now in, the, in this role that I have in the past 12 years, uh, you know, as, as I was trying to get my education, working as a student worker and so on. So very happy about that different life, but, but definitely uh, not linear, but very, very cool. Buenas tardes, buenos dias, everyone. My name is Oscar Fernandez. Um, I'm a queer immigrant scholar from Costa Rica, and it's such an honor and a pleasure to be here with Dr. Gina Garcia and my colleagues here from Portland State University in our Portland, Oregon. So it's really beautiful to be here with you all. Uh, my, <laughs> my journey in higher ed, I mean, do we have like a uh, hundred years of solitude? Um, that's how many uh, years I think I would need uh, Dr. Garcia, Gina, to, to answer your question. But in a really quick summary, I would say I'm originally from Costa Rica. And the reason why I'm here is because my stepdad married my mom and he taught me English. And the first two words, the two first expressions that I learned in English back in Costa Rica, back in the 1970s with 1970s music and ABBA and, you know, uh, music from Spain. Uh, he taught me two expressions in English before I spoke English. I only spoke Spanish, you know, and the two expressions were, may I blow my nose and may I go to the bathroom? Those were the two expressions in English that I learned in Costa Rica in the 1970s. And so I'm very humbled by my journey in higher ed, even though it has been a labyrinth, uh, navigating uh, higher ed as a Latinx queer scholar. But I'm very humbled because, you know, like my dissertation is at the Library of Congress. And my two <laughs> expressions that I learned first was, may I go to the bathroom and may I blow my nose? And, I, <laughs> I, and actually, they came really handy. And, you know, I went to grad school at Penn State uh, in comparative literature and when jobs opened up in the early 2000s, I landed in Oregon. And as an immigrant scholar, I'm, I'm always looking for spaces where people are not being, um, where people are not giving a voice or other folks are not advocating. So as an immigrant, that's sort of the lens that I bring to all my higher uh, ed work is who's not talking, who's in the room, who is not in the room, and can I advocate for them? Uh, I, and can I walk alongside with them to help, help them negotiate 
of higher ed. Cool. Yeah. So for me, for me, this is Martin speaking. It's an honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. Uh, my name is Martin Alberto Gonzalez, and I am from Oxnard, California, 805 representing. And so my journey from Oxnard, I mean, if y'all don't know where Oxnard is, y'all better go ahead and look and Google it. It's, it's in Southern California. It's, it confuses people because it's a beach town, but it's filled with brown people. It's a beach town, but it's filled with brown. And that confuses a lot of people. And so just growing up, I felt like it was more of an exception rather than an expectation to go to a four-year university. You know, a lot of my friends were, were going to community college or we weren't, weren't necessarily thinking about uh, higher ed or four-year universities unless they were playing sports and trying to get an athletic scholarship. And so for me, um, I was in a couple of programs where they taught me a little bit about college, not because I was smart or because I was deemed that smart, because I still think I'm smart to this day. It wasn't because I was deemed that smart. It was because I was brown, I was poor, and I was four, first generation. So they put me in this program, and I got introduced to how to apply to college. I applied to mostly Cal States because those were the most accessible, most financially accessible. Most They say it was the easier ones, the easiest one to get into, right? You didn't have the bet. You didn't have to have the dress GPA. And I went to Cal State Northridge, CSUN representing, which I'm very, very proud of. I always woo, tell people, yo, woo, I know, I know, I know, for <laughs> real, so CSUN is where it's at. Go but Matadors. Was, go Matadors. <laughs> but check this out. That for me, that wasn't always the case. I wasn't proud to be from CSUN. Because it was mostly brown and it was a Cal State and it didn't have any prestige and it didn't have anything. I felt like I was just going there just because I wasn't trying to go to a community college. And that's and, and I feel bad saying that, but I had believed in that stigma of community colleges and I believed in the stigma of CSUN. But later on in this podcast, hopefully I could talk to you about some things that CSUN did that really changed my mind. Well, not CSUN as a whole, but particular faculty members, faculty of color who really changed my life and changed my perspective. So from CSUN, I went straight to New York, upstate New York. I went to Syracuse University. And that's where I did my doctorate in education. That's where I did my PhD. And people always ask me, why'd you go to, why'd you go to Syracuse? Why upstate New York? It's no so much. Because they had a dope-ass program. They had a dope-ass program that said, if you come in here, be yourself, do whatever you're trying to do. So I went into that program and I wasn't even doing what some people would consider research. I was just telling stories. And people were liking my stories. And my stories got me everywhere. My stories actually landed me jobs, part-time jobs at, uh, in Washington and Seattle. So that's how I started segmenting my way to back to Oregon. So in the Pacific Northwest, I was in Seattle. I was teaching at the University of Washington. I was teaching at Western Washington. And, and uh, it was all part-time jobs, but I was teaching so many classes that I was getting banked, kind of, to some extent. But, you know, the fact that I was doing storytelling got me in trouble in the job market. People weren't feeling it. I said, this is not research. We're not going to give you a tenure track position for you to tell stories. So I was applying to different universities. I was applying to ethnic studies. I was applying to education, so many different universities. And I know how to write really good personal statements. I know how to write really good research statements. So I was getting interviews and then I would show up as myself and wouldn't get the job. Getting interviews, I was telling them, I just got this award. I just got that award. I just got this. My timer just went off. So I'm about to end it. Portland State was a space where people said, we like what you're doing. So I said, all right, send me the contract. So that's how I ended up at Portland State. They said, we like what you're doing. Continue telling your stories. We got you here in Chicano Latino Studies. I said, let's make it happen. And that's how I ended up in Oregon. It wasn't design. It wasn't no. I just said, let me see. Someone in the West Coast for sure. And Portland is not that bad. It's not that bad. So I'm going to leave it at that. Appreciate y'all. Awesome. Thank you. Martin is one of my um, soul siblings. We didn't know it, um, but we both come from the 805. We both CSUN grads and we were both yep, Ford, yep. Ford fellows, which is That's actually right. where we met. 
That's one of the most meant. prestigious spaces in higher ed, talking about how higher ed, you know, reinforces um, mm-hmm. pr- prestige, right, and selectivity. So, but I love it. I love all of these stories. Um, and that's why I like to start with the stories, um, because y'all are the people who are enacting servingness, right? And it's like, who are the people that are enacting servingness and why? What's driving you? What from your own experiences is, is, is driving you to even think about HSIs? Um, from your stories, I acknowledge that. So two of the four of you went to HSIs size, right? UC Santa Cruz, they are doing the darn thing. I, they have five chapters in one of my books talking about how they, they're enacting serviness, right? CSUN's been a, uh, it's like a historical, you know, HSI at this point. Um, and, but none of y'all mentioned servingness. None of y'all mentioned, uh, you know, undergraduate experiences um, necessarily, right? That we're like grounded in this idea of serviness and what, what we're trying to do in enacting serviness. So let's talk a little bit about that, about your consciousness into this idea of servingness or how you came to know about HSIs. Um, so yeah, we'll go ahead and, and go there. Carrie, if you want to want to go first. Yeah, for sure. Um, so HSIs came into my consciousness when I attended UCSC, which was a designated HSI. Um, this awareness probably started, I believe, in my sophomore year, um, because in my freshman year, I had no clue about anything. There was a lack of accessibility to resources. I was a first-gen college student. I had no idea what to do when I went in as a first-gen college student. I couldn't go to my parents. I couldn't go to anyone. So I felt like I was alone. Um, and I wasn't fully aware of anything until I joined um, UCSC's Chicanex Latinx Resource Center in Centro. Um, huge shout, shout out to them. They really opened up the door for me and changed my life. They are the reason that I'm here right now in this position in student affairs. Um, it made me aware that Latinxes do belong in higher education and that the work that these CRCs, these cultural resource centers do drive retention. They help students build community. They help students find community and they create access to these resources that I didn't know existed when I was a freshman. Um, and that's why I wanted this position you know, at PSU because I wanted to bring that same feeling that I felt when I found El Centro for students at PSU when they find La Casa. I want them to feel that same way. I want them to have that access, accessibility to those resources. And that's my, my main thing is just being accessible and making sure that these students feel welcome and appreciated and that they know that they belong in higher education. Yeah, I'd say um, I came to learn about HSIs uh, in more, more detail, perhaps, in, in my graduate program. So recently, in the last maybe two, three years, um, uh, I learned about um, uh, minority serving institutions, and then, you know, of course, Hispanic serving institutions, um, HBCUs, and so on, and then started to do some research and, and wrote some some papers uh, uh, for the program uh, uh, on those subjects. And so that's when I, I learned that, that it was a thing, that it was a designation, it involved money, it involved uh, certain populations of people. But I would say that my um, my basically uh, uh, the moment when I when I recognized this idea of servingness, at least the way that I, I, I uh, perceive it now, was in my first Chicano Latino Studies class, which was um, which was a class that I took, of course, in college. You know, I didn't have any exposure to any of this in my high school experience, and being a first gen student as well, um, you know, just didn't know m- much of much of anything academia, right? Uh, but um, yeah, my, my first taste of serviness came came to me via Dr. Leo Rasca Hidalgo, um, uh, you know, my very first uh, professor in my my CHLA 101 class, which was actually a section 
at the community college for CAP students, right? So, so the the um, the children of, of farm workers, which I was not, right? But um, uh, you know, so I had a, a different experience. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, being you know half Mexicano and and of course, you know, speaking the language, you know, Spanish, and and that was able to to certainly relate to some degree. But this was a class with mostly like traditional age students, uh, and uh, you know, Dr. Leo just really really showed me and, and the class, uh, what it what it meant to really serve, to be a true servidor of the people, right? Uh, it wasn't uncommon at all to see Dr. Leo crying, like straight up, like tears, you know, during his lectures in class. Uh, you know, some students weren't ready for that kind of thing, but I, I it was what I needed, you know, as a non-traditional adult student with, with my, my experiences, it was exactly what I needed. And I saw a piece of myself in him, uh, and he saw a piece of himself in all of us students, right? Uh, and he gave us his all. And, and that's when I knew what serving could look like in, in higher ed. I didn't know what to call it at the time, you know, and that's one of the things that we learn, right? Like we have a lot of knowledge, uh, you know, we don't need college necessarily for that, but sometimes how, how do you frame it? How do you think about things and, and how do you call certain things? Right. And so now I see that as serving this, right. The passion that somebody could bring to the classroom, uh, you know, wearing your heart on your sleeve and being open and passionate and, and unapologetic, with your students, that's an example for me of serving this one individual to 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 another to to a classroom. Um, of course, I understand now, uh, you know that that this idea of serving this needs to come, uh, it needs to be institutionalized, right? It needs to be an institutional commitment for everyone to serve in in this in this way to to be transparent, to be honest, and to not be afraid to show their true colors, you know. Uh, and uh, and really really serve. So for me, that was that was really um, uh, the moment uh, when when I was introduced to serving this, and I, I still think about it every day, you know. And I go back to that when I need inspiration, and uh, and, and that's what I aspire to to do as well. Awesome, yeah. Thanks for explaining, right? That like what that even feels like to experience serving this in the classroom. I love it. Um, Martin, you want to tell us? I know you already talked a little bit about your undergraduate experience, um, but tell us more. How did you start thinking about serving this? I think for me, I was, I'm thinking about that phrase, like, you don't know what you got till you, till you don't have it anymore. And at the time, CSUN was just so brown. I'm like, this is normal. Kind of like what, what Dr. Garcia was talking about earlier. You know, carnesales at the quad was something normal. Concha cells was normal. You know, uh, champurado cells, all these other things, the music, everything was so normal. And um, it wasn't until I left that I realized, dang, there was something really special happening at CSUN that I, didn't, I, I wish I would have known was happening. I, I would have valued it a little bit more. But one of the things that really, a couple of things is, obviously, ethnic studies at CSUN changed my life. Um, Chicano Latino studies and, and Asian American studies. And I'm not even Asian. I just took a required class. It was a required thinking, uh, critical thinking class, Asian American studies, Dr. Tracy Buenavista. I know people who are listening to this podcast are going to know who Dr. Tracy Buenavista. I'm very yep, honored yep, to consider yep. her mentee. Very honored to consider her mentee. And a lot of the characteristics that, that Joe was speaking of in terms of uh, Joe's mentor, you know, unapologeticness, just showing up as yourself, saying hella in your lecture. Never heard that before. To say someone saying hella in your lecture, never heard that before. But other things that I just took for granted at CSUN was just like, for example, uh, me taking my English writing class. My English writing class was housed in Chicano, Latin, in Chicano studies. It wasn't housed in English. It was housed in Chicano studies. And the books that we were reading were related to my own life experiences. And when I, when I tell people at other universities, like, yeah, my, I fulfilled my English requirement through Chicano studies. They look at me like, I'm like, what, what are you talking about? How, how's that possible? 
So it was those little things and just having mentors, faculty of color mentors that will go out of their way, that will really dig into their own experiences and have their own experiences inform their mentorship. Talk about how like people would, some faculty members will email me before I get to email them to check in on me, right? To see how I'm doing. Some faculty members will go out of their way to force me to apply to different opportunities at CSUN, at CSUN for me to take advantage of the resources that are happening at CSUN. And lastly, I was, I was in the McNair Scholars Program, but the McNair Scholars Program at CSUN was housed in Chicano Studies. So it was social justice oriented. You were only able to do research projects if they were social justice based. And in that, in that program, we started questioning, what does it mean to actually serve students? So real quick, right before I let y'all go, I started reflecting on my major. I was majoring in sociology and I was thinking about serving this and I was thinking about how is it that I'm being served in ethnic studies, but I've never taken a, fa I've never taken a class in sociology at CSUN with a faculty member who looks like me, who speaks like me, who thinks like me. And that's when I started questioning like, okay, serving this can happen at a Hispanic serving institution, but even then there are pockets of it. Even then you don't get the full experience. So that's when I started getting angry and that's when I started looking into this topic a little bit more. Mm, mm, so much to unpack there, but we'll let Oscar go first and then, and then we'll get into some of that, more of that. Yeah, I love this question about serving this. And I've been thinking about this a lot and you know, um, my consciousness into service, servingness is, is always emerging, but I have to trace it back to my mother and my grandmother. Uh, back in Costa Rica, they were the folks that were actually always serving other people. I still remember my grandmother um, trying to support an alcoholic woman when I was growing up. And she was one of the people that would welcome this very drunk woman to her house uh, and give her some food, give him some water, wash her feet. And my grandmother would do that. So my consciousness into serviness comes from my mother's and my grandmother's and my family. Um, the other, my own consciousness into serviceness is comes from isolation. Uh, for four years as an undergrad, I was the only Latino in my courses, mostly because I chose a really um, niche uh, program. I was a medievalist as an undergrad. <laughs> so you tell me where, how many Latinos uh, major in medieval studies. So I was reading, you know, Chaucer, you know, uh, Canterbury Tales, um, the amazing nuns that would, you know, encloster uh, themselves. And finally, more recently, why I'm the consciousness into HSIs, I owe it to the agitation work that I've been doing alongside dreamers at our institution. So uh, a couple of years ago, a dream uh, student club was formed at, at Portland State called Dream PSU, and they wanted to create a dreamer center. So I approached them and I said, how can I help as a faculty member? And I wish there had been more faculty members at my institution that reached out to them, but I was the only one at the time. This was in the early 2000, uh, 20, uh, 2018. And so thanks to the agitation work that we did, we co-wrote a proposal to bring a dreamer center at PSU. So my connection with HSIs really comes from my mother's, my grandmother, and from working very much directly with uh, dreamers and documented and undocumented students at our institution. Awesome. Oh, y'all give me so much to think about everything y'all said. Some of the things y'all said about your, you know, coming into consciousness around serviness are sort of what I would call the like low hanging fruit. The like, oh yeah, those, you know, ethnic studies, like the, the usual suspects, right? Like ethnic studies, we're going to feel it or, or the Chicano Latinx Resource Center, right? But to say like your grandmother and your mother, those are the, those are the things that, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about, right? Like how, 
how is serviness, how are students bringing serviness to the campus, right? The campus, the, the, the campus already exists. Students also already exist and come in with, with all kind of knowledge, right? And are smart and, and, and despite what the society has told us, right, Martin, that we're, we're smart, we come in, we bring in knowledge, our community cultural wealth. Um, so I love that, right? That you, you, you learned it from, from the home, the pedagogies of the home, how powerful, right? Like all of that matters, right? Or even uh, to get this from like faculty who aren't Latino identified, that's important. We need Latinx faculty, but we also need um, everybody, <laughs> right? Like not Latinx faculty aren't the only ones that have to do the serving this, right? And y'all dropped all of that sort of knowledge. So so thank you, I'm learning so much and we still got so much more to, to talk about. So I'm going to go ahead and jump into um, some of the work that y'all are doing. So I invited y'all to this, you know, to join me on this podcast because I'm really in awe about the work that y'all are doing at Portland State University. I think it's amazing that y'all are taking the steps to really intentionally become an HSI before you're an HSI, right? That's how it should be, in my opinion. Um, and y'all are doing that. So y'all have this HSI exploratory ad hoc committee. And um, I love that, by the way, because I talk about committees all the time. I task force, I usually call them task force. I'm like, you need a task force. If you don't have a task force, get a task force, right? Like hur hurry up and put one together. Um, it's in the book, right? In the edited book about servingness and practice. Um, and so we definitely need to talk about the task force and, and you know, tell me about it. So the first question I want y'all to, to go ahead and jump in and tell us about is talk about the committee. Tell me how it came to be, who's on it and what's your charge? Cause I often talk about there should be a charge. So I could tell you to have a committee all day or a task force, but I want to know what's the charge. What do you, what do you, what are you trying to do and how are you going to know when you get there? Absolutely. So we, uh, so I'm gonna jump in really quick and give you my, give you my initial thoughts. Um, really, I'm relatively new to Portland state. I've only been there for a year, but from my understanding, the committee was only formed a couple of years back, like maybe a year or two back. So basically it started off with faculty and staff, mainly staff, Trying, uh, trying to support one another, you know, knowing that they were very uh, scarce, knowing that there weren't many Latinx folks in the staff positions or in faculty positions, they got together with one another to try to build community with one another, to build community with one another. And that became something, uh, that became something more serious. That became something more serious. It became something where they started noticing, okay, I'm starting to see more and more people who look like me. What can we do with this momentum? What can we do with, with this momentum? So with that momentum, they started, uh, 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 we started kind of thinking about some next steps, started thinking about, okay, we're about like 17, 18% Latinx students. And um, how are we gonna, how are we gonna uh, find ways to support these students? How are we gonna find ways to be proactive in the process, proactive in the process of becoming an HSI, an HSI because we want students to know that if they do come to PSU, they're going to be served. They're going to be given the resources. They're going to be given the skills. They're going to be given the, the, the opportunities for them to thrive, for them to fulfill their potential, for them to imagine themselves going beyond what they'd ever imagined they would do. So I'm going to uh, pass it on to Oscar to give you the specific details in terms of like uh, the, the mission of the committee and, and a little bit, even a little bit more details on how exactly the committee formed. But that's just my understanding. That's just how I experienced it. So been for, been on the committee for about a year now, my only year here. So go ahead, Oscar. Hi, Oscar here again. Um, so the committee, the PSU Portland State University Exploratory Committee was formed back in 2020. And it came about because um, from my work with Dreamers, um, I wanted to make sure that our voices, the voices of Latinos um, 
are present um, as PSU moves into the 25% la- you know, total population. And I wanted our voices to be present from the beginning in a really very much uh, organic way, not let's not reach 25%. And then you tell the people on the uh, who doing the work. So what do we do next? No, ask us now. And, you know, I've been in higher ed for about 20 years. So I know that one way to bring change to leadership and to the culture and policies in higher ed is to write recommendations reports. <laughs> you know, the written word is still supreme. You know, it's like Old Testament or New Testament kind of at the beginning was the word and the word was Latino. That's what I'm trying to say here. Um, so to, like before the 2020, just as the pandemic was raging, um, uh, an admissions officer, Tanya Sanchez, who's not in the podcast today, but she was, we, the two of us co-convened a, a meeting because I, and I met with some of the VPs at our university to get, you know, their seal of approval that it would be okay for us uh, to create such a, such a committee. The mission of the committee is for us to write a recommendations report. Again, this idea at the beginning was the word and the word was Latino and the word was HSI. Uh, The mission of this committee is to write a recommendations report so that we can suggest to the university now, today, hoy, ahorita, ahorita mismo, as we would say in Costa Rica, right now, what are the aspirations what are the cultural wells of the Latinos at PSU? So much of the narrative that I still hear in higher ed is that we lack, Latinos lack. We don't, we lack some things, of course, money, yeah. But we are not creatures on this earth that are lacking. Uh, policies um, underserve us for sure. So that's the, the mission of the committee. And as I said, we're, we're doing town halls uh, with students, with leaders, uh, we, we're doing, of course, the amazing survey that we have to do. Um, yeah, I, I guess I I'll like, stop there. Yeah, no, definitely. I think another, I feel like another part of the mission that I see um, is to hold each other accountable, to hold others accountable, to hold the admin accountable, to fulfill the demands and the needs that the students are telling us that they need. Absolutely. I love all of that. I love, Oscar, that you talked about that this work evolved from your work with undocumented, documented students. Like, that's really powerful to know that this work is being driven, for one, by the students, because it isn't always driven by the students. I say often that HSI and servingness is actually an administrator driven focus um, that often the administrators are like, oh, we're an HSI or we're becoming an HSI or, or there's funding or there's money or whatever it may be and, and, and starts to sort of push it. So the idea that it's coming from the grassroots, right? I would call that grassroots from the ground, from the students, that is, is so powerful. And, and I love that. And I hope y'all will share some more as we continue to talk about some of the things that your undocumented students are asking for and or demanding as part of serveness. I think we need to have more conversations about that. Um, But before we get into that, I want to hear a little bit about any of the um, sort of like challenges you've had, because I I think there are challenges, right? As you start to, to, even as you become a a committee or an ad hoc committee or a task force, um, things come up, right? That it's not all like just rainbows all the time. So talk to me about any sort of challenges y'all have faced so far as a committee. Well, um, uh, I, I just have, you know, maybe a, a few thoughts on that. Um, I, I also uh, relatively new to the committee uh, about a year or so uh, was invited by 
by Oscar uh, and Tanya. Uh, and and I, I would just say from my personal experience and, and what, what I've, I've uh, experienced in, in the last year is it's probably timing, right? It's, it's a lot of uh, uh, capacity. Uh, there's a lot of Latinx, um, uh, you know, staff and faculty, I would say that, that at least in my experience, we haven't really communicated with so much. There's folks, I mean, it's a relatively small group. We're not, not all the folks who identify as this are a part of this work right now. Um, I would think that, uh, it, you know, it's, it's capacity issues. It's folks, you know, being uh, kind of ringed out of their energy, right, in their current roles, and then having to kind of do this on top of that. Uh, so, so I think sometimes, you know, keeping the meetings and writing the 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 the, uh, the reports and so on just takes a lot of um, uh, time and energy and this is all voluntary at this point uh, for a lot of us and and Oscar uh, and friends you know have done uh, a great job at at wanting like a diverse group people from different departments different areas faculty staff administrators doing uh, you know to to participate as we can uh, you know but I think it's it's that it's maybe the capacity uh, uh, is uh, is certainly um, uh, been been an issue I think. Um, also that, you know, PSU uh, as an institution is, is a large institution and, and pretty siloed too. I mean, I'm confident uh, that, that we're going to be breaking those silos down. And, and I think the administration is, is acknowledges that. Uh, and I, I hear people talking about how, uh, you know, we need to uh, maybe centralize and have greater communication. So I'm, I'm confident that we're going to see uh, much improvement uh, in that area. But I foresee some, some of that being the greatest challenges is, is uh, people's time and capacity. Yeah, and I think one thing I did want to add to that too is just like with P within PSU, I feel like there's a lot of lack of knowledge of what an H being an HSI really means. Um, and I feel like a lot of folks kind of take it to mean that um, if we do become an HSI designated uh, designated institution, um, that that means we'll automatically forget about serving Black students, that we'll forget about serving AAPI students, that we'll forget about serving Native Indigenous students, and that is definitely not the case. If anything, I feel like that allows us to continue to serve them in a more, in, in a better way, in a more intentional, accountable way. Um, and I think that's just one thing that we're trying to get out with doing these town halls, with bringing in speakers, is to just give them the, the that kind of surface level knowledge of this will help the Latina students, but it will also help all other marginalized student groups as well. Thank you for saying that. You have no idea how many times I get asked that question. Is like, uh, I actually was coding data today um, from some uh, interviews I had done and, and, and it came up, right? It's like, I immediately code it as like, people worry that HSI means exclusion right? The Hispanic only. So now we're not going to worry about Black students or Native students or Indigenous students or AAPI students or whatever, right? Fill in the blank students. Um, so I'm glad you're, you're saying that. Do you have an, anybody have any examples of, of ways you're, you're doing that? Maybe like inclusion on the committee or, or I, you said town halls, uh, Carrie, any, any other thoughts on that? Because people ask this question all the time. So if y'all have any best practices, jump in and, and say, how do, you, how do you make sure you're doing inclusionary work while still centering your Hispanic Latinx students? Because I, I have to be careful with that too when I tell people, don't, it's not exclusionary, but also it's not, as I say, all lives matter. It's not like we're going to serve everybody, including the white people. White people are going to come along. It's all good. They're, they're going to be included um, without us having to center them, right? So any, any thoughts on that, anyone? Thank you. 
Yeah, I think the one thing that I did want to mention is just that Latin, being Latinx can incorporate many different identities as well. Afro-Latinidad, um, folks who are Asian and also Latine, folks who are Indigenous and also Latine. So I think we have to kind of think about the intersectionality of all of these identities and all of these different students because not one student fits just one mold. I think, and, and, that, and that goes for me, like I'm queer, I'm non-binary, I'm Latine. Like there's just so many different ways of, of thinking about Latinidad. And I think the one thing that I really want to bring forth with this committee is just being intentional about intersectionality. Absolutely, I love it. Thanks for saying that. Martin, you had some thoughts on it as well? Yes, um, I wanted to give a, a shout out to just the committee. Um, it was a Rebecca, Joe, Christina, Meli, and other folks, but in particular, those four people, they, uh, they put together an accessible presentation. Through these okay. sessions, these accessible sessions that give you the bare bones, right? The bare minimum, the, the simplified version of what exactly is the HSI? What, what, is that, what comes along with the HSI? Who, who can contribute to the HSI designation that has been designed for students? has been also helpful for faculty members who we've invited to the session, but who students have also used to educate themselves, to give themselves a framework to know what are the demands that they want, what are the demands that they need, and they've expressed this to the, us those demands or those injustices that they've seen on campus. Why is it that I don't have Latino professors in business? Why is it that I don't have this and that and other, and other spaces? Those are the things that have, those are the powerful conversations that have been had in the conversation, in the town halls, the informative sessions that we've done, the simplified information about what is the HSI, how many students do we have, and what does it mean? Does it mean to that we're going to exclude? So I just wanted to give credit to the folks who've been doing these sessions because these sessions have been very informative. Oscar here. Um, another challenge that I, I see um, in higher ed, and you know, PSU is not particular in terms of this challenge, is don't let the folks already doing diversity labor at PSU be the only voices, the only bodies, the only people crying and laughing with our students. Um, for PSU, for an institution like PSU to become an HSI, everyone has to be on board. Every, faculty will need to teach differently. How they teach and what they teach will have to be different, and that's going to be a growing pain for some of my brothers and sisters who, who you know, teach courses with me. My other challenge, and again, it's not specific to PSU, is that um, all disciplines need to lean on cultural inclusive practices. Um, I, I am very sick and tired of my Latino, Latin A students just telling me, oh, you know, Dr. Fernandez, I feel at home at your classroom. This, this needs to be changed fundamentally. You know, if you're taking whatever discipline, you, all of our students should feel welcomed uh, in that discipline. Um, it should not be just that the ethnic studies courses are the places where our Latino brown students and intersectional students uh, thrive and feel welcomed. Absolutely. Thank you all for jumping in on that. Um, like I said, that's a question that um, I get so much, right? Like often people are like, how do we do this work intentionally without leaving people behind um, and particularly other minoritized um, racial groups, right? That's the important thing, the racialized groups that we're not leaving behind because your black students, your indigenous students have lower outcomes than your Latino students, right? We know that across the board, like no institution has ever shown me equitable outcomes for black students, 
why slavery enslavement i mean we could go history but we'll, we'll save that for another podcast but we know right we have to break down systems for our minoritized students so thank y'all for that i love the idea and the sharing of this um information sessions these town halls that y'all have been doing um for those of you listening trying to figure out where do we start this journey that's a good place right listening slowing down and listening to people, how powerful, right? Um, I, I had the honor of spending time with y'all in one of those information town halls, right? And that was, it was such an honor. Um, and I enjoyed every second of it learning with y'all, right? I, I was invited to talk, but I learned, right? I, I often learn in the in those sessions. So, so thank y'all for that. Um, and, and to Martin's point, we're all learning in those sessions, right? Even the quote unquote expert, right? People call me HSI expert. I learn in those sessions that we, we all have to learn and be open to learning as part of this servantist journey. So, so I love that. I love that y'all are, are looking at it just like that. And yes, do not put this work on the minoritized people on campus because we are far and few between. We are a little bit, <laughs> there's a little bit of us and we're tired right? Your, your people who are in your cultural centers, your people who are in ethnic studies, your one person of color in that area and this area, we're tired, right? Everyone, yep, everyone's got to come, come along. So, so I just wanted to acknowledge all of that, you know, all of that stuff that y'all are, y'all are talking about and give, you know, a couple snaps on, I was snap, snap, snapping on all that, you know, like, yes, 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 cosine, cosine, cosine. Um, so next question, also one question I get a lot is how do we engage students in this process of becoming an HSI? Again, this idea that it's often driven by the administrator. So y'all are doing that work. Um, tell, tell the listeners, what, what have y'all done? If you have specific examples beyond like, you know, the info sessions, how are students defining serviness um, at your campus as you, you take this journey? Hi, Oscar here again. Um, one way that we're including Oscar, Oscar, whichever way you want to pronounce my name, it's fine with me. Um, one way that we're including students um, is, of course, with focus groups. We're interviewing uh, leaders through our Latinx. Um, and, you know, this podcast is reminding me that we need to do better. We need to, instead of just interviewing, in addition to uh, interviewing our Latinx student leaders, this coming fall, we need to interview the student leaders from the other uh, cultural clubs and groups on campus. And so this podcast, this experience today is revealing some of my own blinders and some of the blinders that our own committee has. Um, we should not just lean on, of course, our Latino student leaders. Let's lean on, on all minoritized student leaders on campus. Um, so that's one thing we're doing to involve more student voices. One of my suggestions that is very nerdy academic is to actually create a standing committee through faculty senate. That includes uh, faculty, it includes academic professionals, it includes staff, it includes on, um, and, and includes students. And I would love for this committee to be a standing committee in the faculty senate. I'm saying that this is very nerdy because normally faculty senate is only composed of faculty, of senadores, of senators. No, I want more diverse people making decisions uh, or at least allowed to speak in faculty senate. So that's one way that I think I wanna formally uh, include more student voices is by making sure that in a standing committee and faculty senate, student voices from both undergrad and grad students are also included. Sometimes um, we forget our lovely graduate students. <laughs> we only think about the needs of undergrad students, but we need to think about um, the graduate programs and our Latin A students that are in graduate programs. 
one thing that I'd say, uh, uh, and I do this in my my work, uh, uh, you know, student success advocacy, but but also with my work with HSI, of course, is, is as you said, uh, Dr. Garcia, uh, slowing down, taking a pause, striving to be less transactional, more relational in our work, right? Talking to students, offering that information, uh, modeling the behaviors, uh, you know, and advocacy, and talking about the importance of this committee work and uh, 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 preparing to become an HSI. Uh, but I really think it's, uh, you know, it's about offering that information. It's empowering students. It, it's, it's you know, uh, repeating in many cases the information, not just sending correspondence via email, but every opportunity that we have to talk to students one-on-one -on -one, uh, to, to present opportunities for them. Uh, you know, hopefully it can create some value there uh, and really get them, get them involved uh, in that way. And one thing I want to highlight as well, just in, uh, in, in one of our committee meetings recently and, and talking about uh, how to uh, utilize uh, uh, some of the funds that we have for the, uh, for for example, the the, the um, uh, reimagined PSU grant. Uh, just you know, committee members here, uh, you know, folks on this call, you know, just true, true advocates of like we need to give back to the students. If we have any extra money, you know, none of this keep in it or, or any of that. It's like how can we give this back to the students? Uh, some examples, and Martin, uh, you know, invite you to to talk a little bit about about this if you'd like. Um, uh, you know, thinking about. Uh, uh, you know, inviting students, uh, some of our student artists, you know, and thinking how can we use some of this funds to, to you know, to to elevate their voices and their skills, uh, right, their creativity to tell this story and to elevate their voices uh, and their art and that way empowering them. But I think it really does take uh, a lot of time uh, and trust. Uh, and I think that people move at different speeds, right? Uh, but that, but I, one thing that that I see that's constant is that that students, uh, you know, will always move at the speed of trust, right? So, I mean, if you're able to build that relationship with somebody, they're much more likely to to get engaged and and to really, um, uh, you know, walk with pride uh, and and take those risks, you know, and elevate those voices. Uh, but but we need to have their backs, and and in many cases, we need to uh, really model that example for them as well. I love these ideas and I love the idea that we're even thinking through some of these out loud as we talk, right? That's the serviness journey. That's the process of becoming HSI is we don't have all the answers and we need to be real with that and say, you know what? This conversation is making me think about these things. Um, it makes me think about a lot of things. Y'all giving me so many ideas. Um, one thing that as y'all were talking, you know, about all the different ways you of engaging students, um, I think for one, um, Oscar, you said, uh, you know, focus groups may be insufficient. It's a lot. Asking students is, is a big deal. One of the chapters I, I mentioned, uh, UC Santa Cruz wrote in, in the book, the Servingness and Practice book, they, they talked about a, a program they implemented because student voices in focus groups. Students said, we're experiencing microaggressions in advising sessions. UC Santa Cruz, the folks who are running their, you know, the same task force type that y'all are doing said, okay, let's address it. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to launch a, an advising uh, conference and we're going to talk about it. <laughs> what's a microaggression and what's a microaffirmation? How do you affirm students? So don't downplay that. Um, but one thing I'm going to put back on y'all, especially y'all, uh, those of you writing books, Martin, and collecting data um, is participatory action research projects. I've done a couple with HSIs and students, they, they love it. They're like, oh, we get to do the research. We, we get to to define servingness, right? And y'all have access to students, right? I imagine Carrie, you interact with a lot of students. You could probably get a whole big old sample, right? So um, that's my charge to y'all. You see, I'm giving you homework now. 
Martin, I want to see that book. All right. So the next question I wanted to ask y'all. So something on my mind is that y'all are still in the becoming process. And um, folks that are listening that are also in the becoming process haven't reached the 25%, but getting close. Um, if you could talk a little bit about some of your, your goals for the upcoming year, maybe as a committee, and specifically around how you're working towards getting to the 25%, like what outreach opportunities are going on, what recruitment, how have you brought in your, you know, your recruitment and outreach folks, that, that kind of stuff. Cause I think it's important for people listening who are also in the same space as y'all 18, 19, 20, 22 striving, emerging um, status. What, what, what do you do to actively get to, to HSI? All right, y'all. So one of the things that, that um, it, it's been great to like, uh, you know, I've always heard like you ain't got to reinvent the wheel, just add to it, just, you know, make make it happen. And I feel like, um, you know, fortunately for me, people have already been working towards the recruitment of Latinx and students of color at PSU. You know, I want to I want to shout out a couple other folks in our committee. Let's talk about Pedro, who's now recruiter, recruiter in Southern California. Let's talk about Tanya. Let's talk about Rebecca. Let's talk about Emmanuel who have these programs already, like Tanya and Rebecca, they invited me to, to come as a, re, as a faculty representative for an orientation that's specifically for Latinx students and their families, and their families, where they where the, the, the actual orientation or the recruitment aspect of it and is, is bilingual, right? It's, you know, you're getting different, it could even be multilingual. So you have, you have uh, Tanya and Rebecca doing that type of work that in admissions, trying to recruit, trying to set up opportunities, bringing in schools. And then you have Emmanuel, who directs the Ghana's program, and what? And most of us serve on the Ghana's com com committee. So Ghana's program, please forgive me, y'all. I told y'all, PSU loves these acronyms. I don't remember them all. Y'all gonna have, have to go Google it. Go Google what Ghana's means. And Emmanuel, my bad. But Ghana's is a beautiful program that provides community for students. It provides a little financial stipend, but more than anything, it provides mentorship, uh, tutoring, and uh, just a community and a community that's specific. Uh, that community is very intentional to help folks, students retain their cultura, retain their cultura. I, I've been, I've been uh, fortunate enough to be part of some of the workshops that they do and they're beautiful. And so it's thinking about how, it's thinking about how do we let students who, who are thinking about coming to PSU know that these programs exist for them because Ganas is just one of the programs that are there for their Joe. You may know some other ones because you work directly with students as well. So um, for sure, Emmanuel's doing that work. And so the work is being done. So it's just, adding more human labor, more human labor to it, and then uh, keeping that momentum going. So, you know, the for, for, in my experience, like I said, those opportunities are already there and it's building more. What, one thing I wanted to do, one thing I wanted to say before I pass the mic is that Chicano Latino Studies, we have been expanding to, to high schools. Melissa, who's a professor in Chicano Latino Studies, she's working with a local high school. I presented at multiple, multiple high schools. We're, we're, we're working with Mecha or, uh, chapters and local high schools to ensure that they know that PSU is a plausible opportunity for them. Even for folks who are maybe interested in going the community college route, yes, we could talk about the different opportunities, but having them know that we're there to be, we're there to support and we're there to help them navigate, even if we don't have the answers. So absolutely building, building those connections through our departments, through our work. Just to add to that, I mean, I, I'm I'm not not super keen on like what uh, you know strategies admissions are doing. I know we have some some gente there, some some people there. Uh, Tania Sanchez, uh, uh, to name uh, to name name her, uh, doing some really great work, has some great great ideas, and and I know that uh, they're going to be um, 
you know, really trying to to have, you know, materials and, and uh, uh, legit professional interpreters, right, uh, for our uh, Spanish speaking uh, familias that come to new student orientations, for example, making sure that uh, that the students and uh, the, their their parents and families um, uh, are understanding the information in their language uh, and not just in their language, but, you know, mingling with people, identifying people uh, that are present uh, there at the orientations uh, that are of the culture. Uh, yesterday, I attended uh, the uh, Summer Bridge Scholars Program's uh, uh, new student orientation, which is just the second, and, and it was amazing. Um, uh, unfortunately, they, they weren't able to secure uh, an interpreter uh, for this event, but there are um, two or three orientation sessions for new students starting in the fall that are going to be starting in the fall um, uh, today. And so, um, you know, a group of us, um, uh, people of the culture are going to be present for pre-mixers, you know, uh, just making sure that we're mingling with the with the with the families there so that they know that there are people here on campus and a growing number, of course, of, of professional staff and uh, and faculty that that, um, uh, you know, understand their students that that are be there to care for their students and teach them well. Right. Uh, and so very honored to be um, a part of that uh, Summerbridge Scholars Program again for the second year. Uh, last year, we had uh, a whopping 36 percent. Uh, of the the student population uh, that identify as Latino, uh, which was the, the greatest number. So majority uh, uh, BIPOC students and 36% of those students were Latinx. So, um, uh, you know, really, really happy um, about that. So um, that that's one example of what, what we're doing to uh, to try and, and serve, serve those students and their families better. And lots of work to do still. Absolutely. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, some of the, the external influences. I talk about external influences in, in, in both the serviness um, framework, but also in the next um, book that'll come out in January. I talk a lot about that as you have to think about your community. Um, Y'all have been talking about families. Families, for sure, is in the new the new framework that, I, that is coming out. Um, but your communities, your, your funders, the state-level policies, if there's anti- immigration policies coming out, anti-gay, anti-whatever is coming out these days, right? Anti-people who give birth, all those things matter to serving this because our students are being affected by those things. So let's talk a little bit about some of those external things. So let's let's first think about organizations, um, any sort of associations or organizations at the local or national level that y'all have turned to for guidance in, in your work. Great question, uh, because again, uh, HSIs is not just a thing that institutions do inside themselves. It has to be the context, the community context, the state legal context is so important. So I'm glad you asked this question. Um, at PSU, we have actually a, uh, a director of civic engagement. Uh, they're not here here in the, in the podcast, uh, Dr. Uh, Cynthia Gomez. So we are already very much as we are writing the thriving recommendation report for PSU, becoming a Hispanic serving institution, we are already very much thinking about which uh, organizations do we need to lean on for this work because we cannot do this work alone. And of course, as everyone knows here, uh, connecting with community organizations is one way to com communicate with our students and enroll more of those Latinx students. So some of the organizations that we are reaching out to would be, for example, Teatro Milagro, which is like a bilingual the only bilingual theater in the Northwest here in the United States. Amazing. We're also reaching out to the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Uh, what, how do they envision connecting with Portland State University as the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce? How do we engage more of those uh, businessmen and businesswomen 
who are Latinx and who have uh, organization uh, companies and businesses. Uh, Nationally, one thing that uh, Cynthia Gomez and I and other people at PSU are working is uh, to for PSU to create, to have, uh, to garner the seal of excelencia, el sello de excelencia. Um, and this is sort of a, both a pure procedural um, thing we're doing because the seal of excelencia is from the top down. It has It involves the president of universities and so, you know, what we're doing, what we're doing in this exploratory committee is doing both a top-down approach, but as you can hear from our conversation today, we're doing from the bottom up. And it's in that connection of top and bottom kind of power dynamics uh, that we want to create this recommendation report. The Seal of Excelencia is sort of a, an assessment tool that will help us generate data and programs that Latinos need. Uh, and that, of course, uh, having sort of a national institution like Seal of Excelencia tell us what we're doing well and where we need help in is very important, especially as we talk to uh, admin um, about what work we need to do. So the Seal of Excelencia is both a self-assessment tool, but is one way we can leverage change at our institution. Yes, shout out to Excelencia and Education for their, their wonderful work, advocacy work, right? And it, and the SEAL gives us um, a framework, right? Like uh, 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 to work with, to help us think through some of these things. So I'm glad y'all are already thinking about that even pre, um, uh, you know, getting getting HSI, it's, it's so important. All right, last few questions. Let's talk a little bit about um, Portland State University and what makes your institution unique when it comes to doing this HSI work, whether it be being situated in, in Portland and then in the Pacific Northwest um, and at Portland State, what makes this work unique? I think what I'd like to add to that is just PSU as a campus is already unique in and of itself. So it, it's only right that our you know, journey towards serving this is unique. Um, Portland is a very, if not the most popular city in Oregon. Um, and students are choosing to come here. Um, just when I first got in, the Latinx population, um, the demographics at PSU was 17%. And the most recent demographics show a 1.6% increase. So it was at 18.6% at the end of this school year. Um, and I think just also PSU is a very non-traditional campus. It is a commuter school. That's at least how folks know it to be. It's a commuter school, has very accessible public transportation. Um, and I think for us, all of us here at this committee, we all bring our different expertise and our different critical thinking. And I think kind of going back to the beginning of us three out of four of us being transplants from California and Oscar being from Costa Rica, we all bring a different type of consciousness to this work. And I think that's what makes all of us and our journey to being, to, to, to serving this so unique. Um, and I think PSU as well is a pretty financially accessible school as well, a, a public school. Um, and I think that's one thing that drives students to come here. Um, and I think what, one thing I think Joe and I talked about the other day was that it would be an HSI in the metropolitan area, meaning that there's a lots of um, job opportunities for students once they graduate, or even like if they want to continue higher education, PSU has an amazing under, like graduate programs too. So I think just PSU being unique in and of itself helps our journey 
become unique too. Hi, Oscar here. So I'm going to dream big here. Uh, dream big because if you don't dream big, uh, then just go to sleep. <laughs> uh, I know that's not like that's an oxymoron. So one of the beautiful PSU, Portland State University, is my home and is my refuge from so many of the banalities and tragedies of life. And um, as long as I'm as long as I'm at Portland State University, I'm going to try to make my home, my refuge, as accessible as as open to more Latinos, more people of color. One of the things that I think Portland State is positioned really well to do is to welcome more rural Latinos into higher ed. Uh, for example, 42, about 40% of our Latinos uh, in the state of Oregon are, are in rural counties. I envision, I dream, I'm dreaming big here that uh, higher ed would reach out to those communities in rural Oregon so that HSIs is not just a metropolitan thing that we're doing here in the metro area in Portland, Oregon, around the I-5 corridor, that we actually move to all the agrarian corridors and welcome those Latinos. And this comes from a personal experience. As in grad school, I taught a course at Penn State for migrant, uh, migrant workers. And uh, in my courses, I had the children of migrant farmers. And I would love for Poland State and other, not just Poland State, all institutions of higher learning to have those kinds of satellite programs. And we go where the, where the workers are. We teach next door to the fields where our, their mothers, our mothers, our fathers are working. And we introduce their students to the possibility that uh, higher ed provides, provided me. And I'm hoping that it will provide to them. Absolutely. I love that. I love the idea of bringing in uh, rurality as a dimension of people's identity because it absolutely is. So I'm glad that y'all are y'all are thinking about that because it's an important part of serving us. A lot of our Latino students are, are rural across this country, right? Or, or migrants, uh, workers, farm workers, various um, ways in which, you know, we know that Latino students, Latinx students um, experience uh, the world. So, so thank you for that. So the final question that I have for y'all, it's not really a question. I just want your immediate response. Um, the series is called Que Pasa HSI? So if each of you want to go ahead and tell me, yeah, Que Pasa HSI? What's up? All right. Um, so Que Pasa HSI? I feel like this podcast in general is, I, I consider it as a bridge connecting those who are unaware of HSI or those who are curious about learning about HSI. Um, I think it's extremely important to note that no one's HSI journey is the same. We are all different. Um, the way we're doing it here at PSU, by starting a committee before even getting close to that 25%, it's different, it's unusual, but it works. Uh, this committee is full of people who care about students. Students are always at the forefront for us. And so my hope is that students that listen to this podca podcast get a little bit of an insight of what PSU is and what PSU is about and choose to attend PSU because they know and feel that folks like us are willing and able to create spaces for them. Um, that's what we're trying to achieve. And so far, I think we're on the right track. When I saw the uh, the email invitation for the first time, I mean, it just put a huge grin on my face, right? Just saying the que pasa HSI with the exclamation points. And, you know, I just translated uh, that immediately as like, what's happening at HSI? Right. Just super cool like that. Uh, and so for me, it was uh, very welcoming, approachable and just being in the space uh, uh, you know, uh, with you, Dr. Garcia and, and my colleagues here, just feeling like I can kick my shoes off, uh, and, and kick back, uh, and, and tell it how it is and, and, uh, and be completely honest and transparent and saying that we're all learners in the space. 
you know, being able to share our own personal experiences and elevating our own voices, I think is very, very empowering for us. So, um, uh, you know, I hope that others will have that experience. I'm sure that they will. Uh, and, and uh, you know, I think it's a great, great platform. Uh, you know, lots of folks and, and lots of youngsters list, getting their information through podcasts. And so I know that, that you're going to be reaching a lot of folks out there. Uh, so very, very inspired. Uh, you know, I just want to give you a personal thank you for your your kind words uh, to us as well and for acknowledging the hard work that we're doing at PSU. Uh, you know, certainly proud to be a, a community member uh, at PSU and, and happy to know that uh, that those folks who are learning about what we're doing um, actually um, see us as uh, as a success in the making, uh, and uh, and and that we have folks around the country uh, rooting for us uh, and and the hard work that we're doing. So so thank you for the space, Dr. Ju. Thank you. Oscar here. ¿Qué pasa, HSI? Lo que pasa. ¿Qué pasa? ¿Qué pasa? El pasado, el presente, el futuro es Latino, es Brown. The past, the present, the future is Brown. That's what's happening. That's what's. Eso es lo que está pasando. ¿Qué pasa, HSIs? I'm thinking, educate porque la lucha sigue. Right? So you come to this space, you listening to this space, you listen to our conversation. We are, Dr. Garcia, la, la que lo sabe todo, just admit it to all of us. You don't know it all. You continue to educate yourself. You continue listening. You continue to work. And I feel like that's what this space is for me. I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to learning from others. And I hope y'all learn a little something from us. And so let's continue this fight. Ahí estamos. ¿Qué pasa, HSIs? Thank you all so much for being guests and thank you for that because there's a lot happening in HSIs, right? Like, and y'all have shared so much and so much of your time and energy. And so I appreciate y'all. Thank you for sharing space with me. And I hope everyone loves this episode because it's, it's been amazing. Thanks, y'all. Thank appreciate you, everyone. Y'all. Nice Gracias. Y'all take care.